Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. And today we're speaking with Dr. Liz Dunn. She's the medical affairs lead at Bayer Crop Sciences and someone who's been on the podcast a few times before. So welcome, Dr. Dunn. Hi, glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to have you back on again. It's like been here, like I think your second or third time. Second. Second time, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's always a lot to talk about. And I just wanted to kind of use today as kind of a, a little bit of a mishmash of different topics that people are hearing about, just to kind of help clarify them for the average listener who may not understand uh, the nuances of some of these popular topics. So we'll cover a fair bit of ground today and just see where it leads us. Uh, but I really wanted to start out with your background because it's your technical background that makes you rather unique. So tell me a little bit about your medical background and really what makes you an authority in the area where you work. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's kind of interesting. So I'm an emergency medicine physician and a medical toxicologist. And lots of people say, how on earth did an emergency doctor wind up in agriculture? And I got to agriculture sort of through the scenic route. Um, when I was 21, I was working backstage at a concert venue in St. Louis called the Fox Theater. And um, I was going to major in, or I was majoring in technical theater. So light, sound, um, you know, stage management, those kinds of things. Um, and my father, who was a physician at the time, asked me if I wanted to go on a medical mission with him to Haiti. Um, so he was going to be doing medical, medical work and the rest of our family was going to be taking care of babies in orphanages, feeding them and things like that. And I fell in love with a little boy by the name of Fritz, um, who was the first kid I'd ever seen with malnutrition. And it made me realize, wow, what are you doing with your life? And so I wound up changing my major um, to anthropology went and taught English in Poland for a year after I uh, uh, graduated from college, um, and then really thought maybe I'm going to do medicine. So went into medicine, did emergency medicine because I was interested in doing um, uh, humanitarian work. Um, so uh, wound up loving emergency medicine. I got to take care of all sorts of diseases, people with infectious disease, people with obstetric problems, people with um, broken bones, a whole variety of things. And what I loved about it, it was, uh, was you had access to so many wonderful brains and so many different um, problems. You never knew what was gonna walk in the, the door. But I realized I was a jack of all, all trades and a master of none. So I decided that I was going to further my training in medical toxicology. So I went and trained in medical toxicology for two years and then came back to Washington University in St. Louis and started the medical toxicology fellowship program there. Um, and um, then in 2010, um, the earthquake hit in Haiti um, and I organized a relief mission with several of my residents um, back to Haiti um, in 2010 and realized I was not seeing a whole lot different than it had been 21 years before. Um, and realized as a physician, you put a bandaid on the problem right? Um, when you're dealing with humanitarian relief problems. But what was I seeing that was 
really kind of the underlying problem that kept people in this at the same level of poverty through the between those 21 years, right? Um, I realized that if I was leaving, I was going to be taking away a whole skill set with me and not leaving anything sustainable. And I realized that, you know, you're really seeing malnutrition and insect-borne illness. So what, what can you do in the global health arena that can help address those problems? And I started looking at um, GMOs. I started looking at golden rice and realized that golden rice was a really, really interesting uh, way of preventing um, blindness. One of the leading causes of blindness in children worldwide is vitamin A deficiency. Um, and uh, golden rice was genetically modified to produce beta carotene, which is a precursor of vitamin A. Um, I thought that was really cool science and really interesting a way of dealing with a public health problem. Um, because three grasses feed most of the world, um, over 60% of the world anyway, and those are rice, wheat, and corn. And while they fill you up, um, they don't have a lot of micronutrients. So I really got interested in that as an avenue for um, treating some common problems that you, associate, that you find with malnutrition. And then also being a toxicologist, um, seeing so much insect-borne illness there and realizing in uh, the West, you don't see a lot of insect-borne illness. And why is that? Well, it's because we have access to vector control mechanisms. So um, if you think about it, the World Health Organization was established to prevent outbreaks of the plague before we had good control mechanisms for plague. Um, and so pesticides are critical for public health. They prevent us having diseases from encountering diseases of um, the, the uh, Middle Ages. And so um, I wound up getting offered a job um, by a, a man that, who's a toxicologist that I know by the name of Dr. Dan Goldstein in 2015. And I thought, I don't know if I want to work for Monsanto. <laughs> and uh, wound up uh, looking at the job um, a couple months later. And I was so amazed by the company. It was so unlike anything that I'd ever heard about in academia and anything I'd ever heard about in sort of lay discussions that I took the job. And the day I took the job, Bayer bought the company. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, which was really interesting though, um, because it wound up being, I, I wound up being part of the world's biggest life science company. And the, the you know, motto of the company is health for all and hunger for none. And I really feel like that's been my whole career trajectory. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's a fantastic job. It's a fantastic company. Um, and I, I've learned so much um, from having this access to even this global access to the best brains in, uh, you know, in, in agriculture and in pharmacology and consumer health. I, I've been able to make fantastic connections around the world and learn about so many other different scientific disciplines. It's, it's just a fascinating job. No, that's, so that fits really good. I really wanted to get your background because your story and all of this makes such a big uh, part of uh, why you do what you do today, and and why why it's in, why you're involved in these questions, and the ones that uh, always come back. Well, let's first touch on public health. You're talking about that, you know, and I've heard you talk about this before, and it really is an intriguing distillation that all of the major public health advances that gave us a longer lifespan are based on just a handful of technologies, and in the discussions online, 
of some of these technologies. People always say, well, this is why we're in the worst health that we've ever been in as a species. And I always go, well, I think it's the other way around. So what's the story on that? So the story on that is the 20th century was one of the most amazing centuries that we've lived through, despite two world wars and several huge famines, right? The 20th century bought us a 35 year increase in life expectancy. So in 1800, people lived to be 30 on average. <laughs> By 1900, we were hitting the ripe old age of 45 and 45% of the American population farmed. By 2000, we were getting close to 80 and 2% of the population farmed. And how did that happen? Well, that happened because we had five public health um, advances that really revolutionized um, human health and well-being and, and, and wealth as well. Um, so those five things were the introduction of water sanitation, food security, vaccination, antibiotics, and vector control. And because of those things, you had a diminution of diarrheal illnesses and other water, waterborne diseases. Like, so like cholera, right? Which, which is how epidemiology started. Epidemiology started with Jon Snow discovering that cholera was coming from um, a, a water pump and contaminated water in, in, in London. Um, so, you know, waterborne diseases are still a really big thing in the developing world. And you can get lots of problems from them. Uh, e. coli infections, uh, cholera, uh, typhoid, all sorts of, if you've got fecal contamination of water, that's a big problem, right? Uh, food security, food security, uh, you know, up until the 50s, uh, we were not making, having anywhere near as much um, uh, yield in, in our crop production. Um, it, we had very sort of inefficient ways of farming. Um, and several inventions really made farming a, a huge, uh, huge advances in farming, gave us huge advances in farming, which improved yield, uh, improved food, food, food security from a, a infectious disease standpoint as well. Um, you know, uh, fungal infections of crops uh, elaborate my, mycotoxins, and that, that has big public health imp impacts. Um, and the, the ways you can control that is with, you know, weed control, uh, vector control, and then antifungal medications. Um, prior to the advent of those kinds of things, um, you would have large outbreaks of, of uh, diseases like ergotism, um, which uh, caused hallucinations and made people have miscarriages and have their fingers and toes fall off because the blood supply got cut off. Mass, mass outbreaks of this. Uh, I think even all the way into the 50s, there were case reports where big populations in France would, would get, have ergotism um, and, and uh, die from it. Um, you know, you had toxic weeds in the food supply and now we monitor for toxic weeds in the food supply. So food security is a big thing. Vaccination, hands down. Uh, you know, uh, eradicated smallpox from the world. It, it just a hugely, hugely important uh, way of controlling diseases that killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people uh, throughout uh, millennia. Um, and then uh, antibiotics. Uh, it, what's really interesting <laughs> about antibiotics 
is that if you think about it, and many antibiotics come from soil microorganisms, right? And penicillin comes from a fungus, right? Um, and so it, it, when microorganisms is sort of, uh, you know, co-evolve, they make defense mechanisms for protecting themselves from other, other organisms. So a lot of people get concerned about plants having pesticide residues on them. Well, um, plants, um, since they can't run away from you, make their own pesticides. Um, and they are chemicals that they, they prevent uh, animals or insects or, uh, you know, uh, other weed pressure, they make their own pesticides to protect themselves from predation. Um, and we have figured out how to, to turn those chemistries, a lot of them natural chemistries, into very beneficial chemistries that we can use to protect plants or our crops in a variety of different ways. Um, and then uh, vector control, you know, one of the, the, the number one killer of mankind is the mosquito. Um, and the mosquito can carry all sorts of diseases, not just malaria, which kills over 3,000 kids a day, but kills, they can carry viral illnesses that don't have any kind of treatment. So you have to prevent people from getting that illness in the first place. So Zika, dengue, dengue is like a hemorrhagic virus, right? So it's a mosquito carries an Ebola-like virus um, it, it, that, causes a lot of death and destruction worldwide. So um, I think that those, those controls, those things um, that we in the West tend to take for granted, we have all our groceries on our shelves, we, our houses are not infested with bed bugs and lice and cockroaches and you know things like that. <laughs> oh, you know, this is, we think that that's the way life is, but it's not the way life has been. It's only been that way for the past, Oh, 50, 60 years, you know? And in places and other places in the world, they don't have access to all these, these the abundance that we have. And we really sometimes take it for granted. No, you're 100% right. And you basically talked about, you know, water security and uh, water hygiene or fluoridation, perhaps. And uh, if you talk about uh, vaccines and uh, chemistry that's being used on crops and insects, you must be the most popular person on Twitter. I don't know that I'm the most popular person on Twitter, but I love Twitter. I, I think Twitter's <laughs> Twitter is quite the place to um, really try to have conversations with people. It's funny because you get only a little kind of snippet in there and you can have all of a sudden everybody descend on you and have all sorts of opinions. And you can understand where they get their opinions because they see the popular narrative and a lot of the people that have these opinions are very very well intended right um because they don't they they we we all want good healthy food and water for our children and our families and things like that and so what they see is they see the sort of you know popular narrative about monsanto and big big ag uh, they see the popular narrative about pesticides they see and and so they are worried about you know, corporate interests, and they're also worried about, you know, harming their children. Um, what they don't know is how heavily regulated companies are and how heavily regulated pesticides and GMOs are and how critical all of that is for having a lower environmental uh, footprint 
So if you're worried about planetary health, um, the, the goal of the agriculture industry is to produce as much healthy food so the prices are affordable um, as possible with the lowest environmental footprint. And we are regulated to try to do that. And if people had a better understanding that this is, uh, this is something that's critical, they would maybe be a little bit more um, accepting of new technologies. Yeah, that's very true. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing because when you look at food production and how that is happening around the world, technology and genetic improvement of crops has been at the center of that. And how you went from 1920s, uh, 20 bushels per acre of corn to today, 200. In some cases, if you really push it, you know, there's somebody who always does over 400. Um, how, and all of this has been because of innovations in genetics. And a lot of companies have done this, and many of them have been, been absorbed in the bigger conglomerates in agriculture. But when you talk about genetics, you talk about food, you talk about it in public spaces, people get concerned. And it's because, um, you know, when you say they're concerned about the health of their kids, they're concerned about the environment. It's like, I'm saying, me too. Um, you know, my, my kid's minus two months old, you know, and, and I'm very concerned about her already. And I wouldn't ever let anything happen to her. But, but so I understand where this comes from. The problem is, is that I don't get worried about it. I'm yeah. concerned about their health, but I don't worry about the things that everybody else worries about because I understand the regulatory process, but I also understand the basic science of the genetics. And so how do we use things like Twitter? And I kind of know the answer to this, but I'd like to hear your take. How can we better use Twitter and social media to help bridge that from you know concern to, to worry to just good, healthy concern and skepticism? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of people are cynical uh, about science. And I think that, you know, COVID has kind of laid this bare. There's, you know, people have been so negatively impacted by this, uh, this uh, disease that they look at now science on a, at a, in a completely different way. They have a different perspective on public health, on doctors, on scientists, just in general. And um, they want to know who they can trust. And I think that um, one of the issues for scientists just in general is that they are very good at what they do, but they aren't particularly good at communicating it. And so what happens is you get sort of two layers of communication. You get a very high level basic communication that often comes from companies, a corporate message. Trust us, we know that this is okay. We know we've done lots of studies and that, people go, hmm, I don't know if I, 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 I'd like to know a little bit more. But if you want to know a little bit more, all of a sudden you need to have a PhD in a variety of different you know, disciplines to be able to understand what anybody's saying. So there needs to be a shift into the happy medium of where you can have a dialogue with somebody who has some scientific expertise that you can trust and you know that they are that they, 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 they can communicate at a level that's not condescending but it's not either it, it's just right it's like the goldilocks um, scientific of, of scientific communication not too high not too low but just right and twitter can offer an opportunity for that kind of discussion 
Um, Twitter can be very adversarial and very scary, but I think if you think about it, everybody from all sorts of different walks of life is on Twitter. So all politicians are on Twitter. A bunch of scientists are on Twitter. A bunch of moms are on Twitter. Um, and, and professionals from a variety of dis different disciplines. So the people that follow me are physicians, public health people, but I have a whole bunch of ag people that are following me too. Those communities usually don't interact. And if you think about it, it's a fascinating mix because physicians tend to be urban and tend to be a little bit liberal, whereas uh, ag folks, and growers and producers, sorry about the dogs, growers and producers tend to be a little bit more uh, uh, rural and conservative. And they have questions about each other's science. So for two and a half decades now, we've had people growing GMOs and really uh, working on that science. And there's been a lot of questioning about GMOs and their safety coming from the medical community. And the people, the scientists in the, in the ag community are like, well, we've got so much depth in this and we've done so much work on this. And we know that this is really important for food security and that, that this, they are safe. We've done the testing that they, to demonstrate their safety on billions of animals. So, you know, this is, this, is, this is really, really well known and regulatory agencies all around the world agree that this is safe. Whereas physicians are like, well, we're, we're not so sure and we don't know enough about it and we don't have access to a lot of information about it. Um, and what we see is eat organic and, and all of this stuff. And there's nothing wrong with organic. It's just that we have 10,000 years of experience with it and it's not gonna feed 10 billion people, right? So, so physicians have lots of questions and they have no access to that information. Now, enter COVID and there are all sorts of questions about vaccines and these new novel vaccines, which are unbelievable feats of science. I, I just think that they're so interesting and have so much potential to, to, to use that science to actually cure cancer without chemotherapy. And I don't say that lightly. I look at this kind of stuff very seriously. Um, but there are so much suspicion around these vaccines and this technology uh, based on fear and, and a lot of misinformation that I think that the agricultural community is saying, we don't get this, we don't, and they don't have <laughs> to the science, right? And the physicians are like, why don't you understand this? So I do a talk, which is called How Medicine Became Monsanto, COVID-19 and Pitfalls in Scientific Communication, where I try to get both of those groups yeah. together to have a dialogue so they can understand the benefits and safety of both of those things. And so Twitter turns out to be a wonderful opportunity to have those people engage. And you have to be a little bit brave because you will have a whole bunch of anti-vaxxers that don't like you and have plenty to say. And you'll have a whole bunch of anti-GMO people that don't like you and have plenty to say. <laughs> but you find the people in the middle. And when you find the people in the middle and you answer their questions, everybody gets backed into their corner. Um, and and if, if you, are willing to understand that there are a lot of people who are not in a corner. There are a lot of people who want to know 
and they just don't want to have somebody be condescending to them. They don't want to have somebody be mean to them or call them an anti-vaxxer or, you know, anti-science person. So Twitter provides an opportunity to start a conversation. And that conversation is really expanded with the advent of Twitter spaces. So Twitter, if you ask me, Twitter's really become the news. Um, and if you watch anything, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, whatever, part of a huge chunk of the discussion will be what happened on Twitter today, right? Mm -hmm. So Twitter has become the news. And Twitter spaces have become a, an avenue for people to have a huge audience to have real-time discussions about things that are happening and things that they have questions about. And it's the first time I've been able to see experts from a variety of dis different disciplines be able to answer questions or even have discussions and debates that are public about uh, questions that are going out there. Um, and, and yes, they can get lively. And yes, if you aren't used to, if you're not an ER doctor and used to a little bit of chaos, um, they can be a little intimidating at first. But they, they actually are, I think, a really new, innovative way of having open, public, transparent discussions with people from a variety of different backgrounds to uh, about, about topics and, and controversial topics. Um, and I think that, that that's a real avenue for people to be able to learn more and, and make a decision and an informed decision based on listening to experts. Yeah, very good. Let's take a break here. I kind of forgot to do that. Uh, so we're right. speaking with Dr. Liza Dunn. She's the uh, I forgot your title. You're the medical, med affairs, lead. <laughs> medical affairs lead at, you know, you just can't say like the, the top doctor at uh, Bayer Crop Sciences. And we'll be back with the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. So now we're back on Calabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we're speaking with Dr. Liza Dunn. She's the Medical Affairs Lead at Bayer Crop Sciences. And we're just kind of touching on a bunch of major uh, topics in modern science. And one of the big ones was we're just coming out of Twitter and Twitter spaces. And one of the things that I've really learned because I've become uh, engulfed in a couple of clouds of controversy lately that I get on um, Twitter and mention something like glyphosate being okay, or that seed oils are okay. Or, I mean, seed oils is like a major controversy. You'll have a thousand accounts to send on you and tell you you're going to die tomorrow because of seed oils, let alone COVID vaccines or mRNA or whatever. And one thing that I think I've learned, and I'm going to launch it here because I'm suspicious, I think that there are fake accounts everywhere on Twitter right now that do nothing but stoke controversy. And if you look at the, if you look at whoever is causing controversy, 
They have a handful of followers, maybe very few, and have been on maybe for some time, like older accounts, a couple of years old, but no followers and not that many tweets. And the only ones they do are provocative. And they tend to be a, a, around certain conversations. So it's kind of like they fish for some. So I don't know. Have you noticed the same thing at, at all? Yeah. So I think that I think that yeah. I think there are a lot of bots, and I think that a lot of bot accounts will sort of do a swarm and you know tell you how terrible you are because you talk about you know these scientific ideas. Um, and yes, I, so I I think that that's interesting. One of the things that I've discovered about Twitter Spaces is that those aren't bots. Those are real people with real ideas and real accounts. And so there are people with there are people with 2 million followers who I talk to on these spaces. Um, and so I think that this is I think that the space mechanism is one of the ways that they're starting to tease out who's a bot and who's wow. not. And because these spaces, so the first space that I was on was in December um, and it was on a Mario Nafal space and it, they were talking about the vaccine. They were talking about, uh, you know, what was going on with the vaccine and over 348, I think it was 350,000 people listened to that space. Now these spaces can be very long. They can be you know, any, they can be anywhere from an hour to, to seven, eight, nine, ten 10 hours. And they are on all sorts of different topics. But I think that's the way you start teasing out who, who's a real person and who's not. You also, you know, you can also have a back and forth with some of these people, but you think there's a saying on Twitter. I don't know how many people that are going to hear this are on Twitter, but you know, don't feed the trolls. So <laughs> there are yeah. people who like to harass you. And I actually don't block anybody, but I tend to mute them. Yeah, I block a lot. Um, I, I do feed the trolls a bit because uh, Twitter is a spectator sport. And That's you have a lot of people who don't know who to trust, who are looking at this conversation between the scientist from Florida, who has a record of 37 years of public health or public health, public service, and, uh, and a troll who's saying, well, in 2015, he took money from Monsanto. It's like the, it becomes very clear who to trust, you okay. know, and, and so this is a place going back to trust, whereas if, and I always say, if you're a diamond in the cesspool, it glimmers so <laughs> brightly, um, you know, that this is an opportunity for us as scientists and those who are listening, um, who may be lay people or scientists, whatever, to engage in Twitter and engage with class, take the high road, say, I understand where you're coming from because these are what people truly feel in their hearts, but share your expertise and earn the trust because there are thousands of people watching. And during the last two weeks of people just like flaming me about glyphosate and about seed oils and about vaccines and nobody on GMOs anymore, that's yeah. the ship sailed. Um, I have never had such an explosion of new followers. Yes, that's exactly right. And since December, I've doubled my number of followers. It's just been exponential since I've started being on these spaces. Um, and, and the other thing is um, realize that a lot of people get concerned about, you know, the Twitter mob and having people mad at them. And Twitter's not the real world. It, it, Twitter helps you sort of help 
educate people about public health and things like that. And so it's a very, very valuable tool, but you can always put it away. Um, I never take things personally. And I, and if I do take things, if I get upset, I just put it down. I won't respond. I think don't let, don't let a bad faith and anger make you mad. Once again, you actually develop much more um, trust. People will trust you if they know that they can answer, they can ask you questions and, and they, they'll trust you if they can ask you challenging questions. Um, and you may not wind up even ever agreeing with the person on the other side, but I've now had some pretty productive discussions with people that I'm very politically different than. Um, mm. And so I think it's one of the ways, if you, if you can rise above the Sturm and Drang, it's one of the things that I think will really contribute to healing in this country. And I think it's important um, to try to find the middle ground and um, find, understand that people who are angry are often coming from a place where they've had a t bad experience. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can understand that and empathize with them, then that starts building trust. Yeah, and it also has the elements of bias and other cognitive errors that we make and that somebody will say, well, every time I stop eating corn, um, I feel better and my stomach problems solve, resolve. And, and okay, well, maybe that's true because when you stopped eating corn, you also started exercising or started drinking more water or started doing something else different. You know, we make a lot of cognitive errors and, and you have to understand that people are sometimes victims of their own self-deception as well as the deception from others in social media and that there exactly. are people there, but there are people whose job it is 24 hours a day, seven days a week to make sure that your message never gets out or is contradicted if it does get out. And you have a full-time job doing what you do. I got a full-time job doing what I do, two full-time jobs, let alone. And so uh, in trying to allay the concerns of the concerned mom who makes, and you mentioned this earlier, people who will say, well, I'm just going to eat organic. They make their precautionary decision mm -hmm. because they don't know who to trust. How do we earn that trust? And, and I, I would urge people definitely to engage in Twitter for sure. Um, I, I got um, you know more followers, but I get emails from people saying, I read, saw you, heard you on Twitter. Can you answer this for me? Yes. So it is the conduit. And then the last thing I'll say on this issue is, um, you know, and certainly love your follow-up, is we almost might be trending towards a time when people are starting to realize that kindness actually wins influence. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Because, you know, if you can de-escalate, so it's interesting, there was a, when, when you're an emergency doctor, you have people in high, high stress situations, gunshot wounds, you know, stabbings, and you're, you're going to be taking care of people who hurt each other in this, yeah. you know, yeah. one room away from each other. So and then I, the patients too. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, but so, yeah, so high stress situations. And so what you have to do is you have to figure out how to de-escalate those high stress situations. And when you're on Twitter and you've got somebody who's been hurt in some capacity or is angry in some capacity because of something that's happened to them, or a loved one, it's very hard to, um, you know, give your scientific message. You need to start de-escalating and listening 
Um, and that, if, if you can learn about how de-escalating and listening and empathizing and understanding other people, you really can build some bridges. Um, and and then, then, then they really wanna actually ask you questions, real questions. And so what I'd say is that we'd be, it'd be good if we could learn to forgive each other a little bit. And if we could learn to um, maybe accept that um, the polarization that's due to politics should maybe try, we should try to not think that just because somebody has one opinion about one agenda item that they fall in with a whole sort of litany of things um, that are unacceptable, unacceptable to other people. And, and it goes both in both directions. Yeah. So I think that, that that's, it's really important for people to try to um, be, have empathy for other people's experience, understand that you're not in their shoes um, and forgiveness. And th those, are, those are really important principles. You, know, you took the words right out of my mouth with uh, you know, walking a mile in someone else's shoes. And a big part of that is, you know, I, I live in a predominantly very conservative area, but I'm a professor who has, you know, a lot of left leanings with respect to social issues, those kinds of things, but pretty conservative financially. And so I don't have, and also with some other issues, I mean, it goes kind of both ways. And the problem is everybody gets mad at me, <laughs> like you're saying earlier, like, you know, um, and, uh, and, but at the, at the same time, you have to put yourself in someone else's shoes that if I was a business owner, maybe I would feel this way about these tax policies because I see how it affects my ability to hire and my ability to maintain an income myself, um, the way in which it changes the regulations on me, um, the way that uh, regulations in agriculture are, you know, they just killing a farmer's bottom line. And I could see how that would become priority number one. And I don't care what happens to uh, abortions or trans yeah. issues or whatever, because I, my bottom line is at stake. So I have to vote this way. And, and so thinking about it that way maybe would help us get to a little better middle ground. That's exactly right. I think we, I think that too many discussions get hijacked by uh, like a social issue and people don't understand the real world impacts of that. And, you know, another thing that people talk about all the time is, you know, um, school closures, right? And it, it's fine if you've got access to, uh, you know, a, a, a computer and electricity and all of this kind of stuff. But if, if you're a single working mom, who has to go to work so you can have the pay for the electricity to pay for the computer to pay for the wi-fi so your kid can get educated two years is yeah. a big deal and so so i i think that a lot of people had you know once again people are well-intended but they they have to think about the implications of what they're saying um and so Walking in other people's shoes maybe makes it a little bit, makes you more empathetic about things. And I think that in terms of scientific communication, some of us, um, some of us are rigid in our, our prescriptions for how other people should behave. And I think that maybe we need to be a little bit more fluid in those prescriptions because reality, we, we you know, reality intervenes.
Yeah, and so you know, you and I didn't have a uh, an agenda for today's conversation. We just wanted to see where it goes because pretty much you and I get stuck in an airport together. We end up on a phone call or whatever. It just goes in a good place, and we kind of have to wrap it up soon. But maybe we could conclude by kind of following this theme all the way through. A lot of folks who are listening say, "Yeah, but I'm not an expert in." science. I'm not an emergency room physician. I don't have a background in toxicology yet. You know, I, I really appreciate what Dr. Dunn brings to the table. Fulta, pretty good. Um, and I'd love to participate in the conversation. How important is the power of amplification in social media? Oh, hugely, hugely important. Yeah. So it, even if you don't have those backgrounds, I know you have questions. Don't be worried about asking those questions and don't be worried about asking tough questions, ask tough questions, you know, and if somebody is too much of a snowflake to answer those tough questions, then, then, you know, you aren't going to trust them. Right. But if they do answer them and they answer them in a way that is, um, is, 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 you know, that, that you feel like you can, you may not agree with it, but in a way that's not rude or condescending or angry sounding, I think that you can develop a dialogue with that kind of person and then amplify those answers. I have questions for people all the time that I have no expertise in. And so, and I've found that Twitter has been a, a wonderful way for me to tap other people's brains that have much more expertise. And I try to get like multiple different um, opinions. So I make the best informed opinion about things that I have no expertise in. So um, don't worry if you don't know, feel free to ask. And that, that's what the beauty of this platform is. Yeah. And if you find things that are scientifically accurate within your understanding that you find are com particularly compelling, retweet, 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 and share on Facebook and share on Instagram, share in your networks. And then this is the way good stuff grows. The people who have been against science know this expertly, and they have people whose full-time job it is to write some hideous thing about me or, you know, or Liza, and then uh, some, then the same people will like <laughs> and retweet, <laughs> right. and, yeah. and, and they, but they're pushing it into their networks, and the way that we can push back against full-time, you know, the handful of full-time accounts, it was a Center for Countering Digital Hate said 65% uh, of the fake information on COVID came from 12 accounts. Yeah. Um, so, but there's billions of us, well, mil um, millions of us. And if everybody just took a little bit of time to go out and share a few messages and ask a few questions, it changes the dynamic. And it's so okay. maybe a really great way to wrap this up, and you know, I'd love to hear your two senses, is here we are as a scientific community on a scientific podcast. And the way that we take the power back here is by sharing each other's messaging. So uh, I want to see lots of retweets of this particular episode. <laughs> um, any thoughts on that while we wrap it up? Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. I, we do not want to go back to having diseases of the Middle Ages because of misinformation. We've got, we have made so much progress. We have, you know, better health that we've got, you know, access to incredibly healthy food um, and incredibly wonderful um, lifestyles because of, because of, um, of, of the scientific advances that we've had in public health. And, and I would love to see a positive spin on this instead of, you know, the negative emotions that get brought up by, by you know, anti-vaccine and anti-antibiotics and people, people pushing for raw water. And the whole thing is that'll put us right back to <laughs> 1900 when we lived to age 45. So all right, raw water, a great note to go out on. No, so, uh -huh. 
Dr. Liza Dunn, thank you very much for another wonderful conversation. I look forward to seeing you again in person. And one of these days, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll take on some sort of project together. That'd be really cool. We'll get That'd be great. Yeah, thank you very much. And for everybody who's listening, write reviews on iTunes, share with a friend, share with two friends, tell them to share with their friends. And this is how we make good information spread. There's a turn that's occurring. Uh, be kind in social media, share it with friends, uh, share, with, share with your networks. And I think this is the way that we start to solve the problem. So thank you very much for listening to Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast. And we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.